0: If for some reason we can't sell our assets, and we need to hold on forever, Portland is a place that we feel like we can hold on to forever and have a good enough cash flow to be able to sustain.
1: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate related topics in the Western part of the United States. Today, we'll have a chance to dig a bit into several different markets with insight from Farhan Mahmood managing director of acquisitions at Tryon Properties, who invests in those target markets in the Western United States. Farhan has experience acquiring and stabilizing properties up and down the West Coast. Join us as we talk with a leading private equity investment company who has a multi-state strategy and find out what they look for in real estate opportunities. We're really, really happy to have you here today, Farhan. Thanks very much for making the trek
0: up. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Good, good. Tell us a bit about your background in relation to multi-markets and a little bit about Tryon Properties, what you do, and how you guys do it.
0: Sure. So Tryon Properties is a vertically integrated multifamily investment firm. We're based out of Los Angeles, California, like you said. Uh, And we started started buying apartments in Los Angeles, specifically the Valley. Uh, And as we built our expertise, we started moving up the West Coast. Uh, we went to Sacramento, we went to San Diego, Bay Area. And as we did well over there, we wanted to continue to go up the West Coast and, and looked into Seattle and Portland. Uh, we found the pricing in Seattle to be a little aggressive, so didn't acquire anything there. And as soon as we hit Portland, uh, and our first acquisition in Portland was three about three years ago. We've acquired 11 properties uh, in Portland since then. Uh, We've done really well. And now we're actually at the point where Portland is our most active market. Uh, We're here all the time. I have a barber down the street. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Getting settled in. how often I'm here. Uh, And this year we're focusing on uh, breaking into Denver also. So um, one day of the week I'm either in Denver, Portland, or the Bay Area.
1: Nice. Okay. So, you know, obviously you mentioned several markets there. Tell tell us a little bit about what you're looking for in a market. And what you When you say break into a market, what are you looking for? What are the pros and cons of, of those markets? And, you know, from a macro perspective, we're looking at the Western United States. So, you know, if you look at a map and you're saying, okay, well, this is a hot market, that's a hot market. Uh, obviously, you had a progression. Tell us a little bit about that progression and and what some of those markets offered to you? What was appealing to the markets as you kind of stumbled on uh, from one market to another?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think we've talked about this a little bit and talked a little bit about it at the breakfast is, uh, you know, we are investing investors' money. And I cut my teeth specifically in the downturn. And uh, I saw a lot of scary things happening. One of my first jobs was flying to chicago as a consultant and figuring out what lehman brothers had done wrong on their valuations and a lot of it had to do with aggressive growth assumptions and things like that and it and and it was shocking to me how much money was lost based on these aggressive assumptions and things like that and so you know i may be the most uh risk averse person in my office and so when we're looking into a new new market i'm not solely focused on how is it growing right now. I'm focused on how it can withstand a downturn. And so a few things we're looking at is where we want to make sure that it's a diverse economy base. We do want to see populations that are growing. Uh, But what I liked about Portland is Portland's been growing for 17 years, really, since 2000, and has been growing pretty consistently, where maybe some markets right now where we're seeing a lot of growth are Phoenix, Las Vegas, um, Texas has a lot of growth. uh, But a lot of that is a move towards affordability. And we won't go there even though it's it's projected to have a lot of short-term growth because we're worried about the diversity of their economy. Uh, They're the first to go down, the last to come back, things like that. And they were hit extremely, extremely hard during the downturn. You know, we – We went to a market like Sacramento where we went to streets where every property on the street was foreclosed on. Every apartment Mm. building on the street was foreclosed on. Uh, Portland, for that matter, uh, had single-digit multifamily foreclosures uh, over a certain amount of units. I think it was over 25 units where... Somewhere like Arizona had 224 foreclosures. And you know the past may not be replicated completely, but a lot of that was because of uh, the d- diversity of the economy uh, and just healthy growth and great infrastructure. And uh, you know, it's also important that people want to move to a place like Portland. People want to move to a place like Denver. Uh, companies are moving to Portland, Denver. Uh, Salt Lake City is also really good. Uh, market that we're looking at right now. Um, and we will not, you know, we will not look at the Phoenix, Las Vegas type of markets uh, probably ever, even though, you know, a lot of institutions are kind of moving that way.
1: So on the conservative side, just to be clear, you're not looking at those fad markets that are hot right now. You're looking at those markets that are going to provide stabilization. You kind of saw, I think you mentioned, uh, Portland is one of those opportunities, which is longer term, uh, consistent growth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, so we define risk kind of in three ways. So three major ways. There's, there's physical risk to the property, uh, you know, and that's a risk we can kind of get comfortable with. Uh, An older building, we can get really comfortable with. How's the plumbing? What do we need to do? Roof, siding, things like that. We can fix a lot of that stuff. Then we, financing risk is we don't want to over leverage our loans. We want to keep our loans to a level that if everything goes wrong, we can hold for a long time. And usually we, we like longer term loans with low uh, loan to values. And then the third one is the, is the market risk, which we're talking about right now. And if we're in diverse economies that are growing with uh, a diverse variety of employers, uh, we feel pretty good about being here long term if we need to hold on. if if for some reason we can't sell our assets and we need to hold on forever, Portland is a place that we feel like we can hold on to forever and have a good enough cash flow to be able to sustain.
2: Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I understand Vegas just because obviously that's very based on the economy. You know, people tend to spend money and travel when they're, you know, when the economy is doing well. Um, so Vegas is going to see that kind of ebb and flow. I'm a little surprised and might just be because I don't know a lot about the area, but Phoenix, um, that you guys are staying away from Phoenix, I mean, I... From what I can tell, there's some fairly large employers down there. Is there a particular reason that you guys kind of just you know decided to move on past Phoenix?
0: Yeah, one of the things. So you see this in Phoenix, you see this in Texas a lot. So it's it's not only uh, employers, but because Texas has great employers, it's also supply. So if you wanted to, if you want to build something. In Portland, you have to go through the entitlement process, especially if you want to build something bigger uh It could take some times and approvals and things like that and there's not that much land to do it uh If you want to build something in Texas Phoenix, you can build quickly, and that supply could come really quickly and at the end of the game at the end of the day, apartments is supply and demand, and so that supply coming into a market like Phoenix can be difficult sometimes so one of the things I guess you know, that I'm kind of curious about, I mean, obviously in the
2: West Coast and some of the markets you're looking at, you're looking at markets that actually have, relative, at least to the most of the U.S., a lot of regulation. Um, you know, h- how are you guys kind of perceiving that? How are you guys measuring that as just kind of something you're just chalking up to being kind of the nature of the beast and being in the these markets? Um, you know, how does that affect your decision to invest in some place?
0: So tell me more about what you're referring to in as regulation. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, I mean, for example, um, you know, Oregon recently passed, you know, SB six hundred eight, um, which is pretty substantial regulation. But even prior to that, um, there are some states that one might say ha- are more pro-tenant, where they have a lot more uh, tenant-friendly rights as opposed to a landlord. That could range from. You know how you have to evict people, to whether or not you can charge fees for certain things, yeah. to how you deal with abandoned property. I mean, all those things are an operational issue at times. And so I'm just wondering how much of that plays into your kind of decision to invest in a market or not.
0: Yeah. So, for example, in Los Angeles, where we're from, uh, we won't buy a rent control building. Uh, Los Angeles has 3% caps, uh, you know, and uh, there's a significant amount of money that needs to be invested in in these older buildings. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get a return on that investment, then you just can't buy it. Um, the current law that just passed in Oregon, 7% plus CPI, seems like a good compromise, I think. Um, it's it's workable. You know, 7% put CPI is enough growth. We're not trying to do the 40%, 50% uh, bumps and things like that. And mm-hmm. so for now, Portland is... Portland, the Portland market, Oregon, I should say, is uh, still kind of a workable regulation. But let's say if that seven percent plus CPI moved down to two or three percent, we would stop in- investing in the state. Yeah
2: well, I mean, <clears throat> there's a, there's a couple of components to that bill. Obviously, like the rent controls the one that gets most of the attention, um uh, but you're also talking about statewide relocation or you're paying one month's rent if you're you know having a tenant move, which in multifamily, uh, can be challenging just because of the fact that a lot of those exceptions are designed for smaller landlords, right? So, you know, are you guys factoring for that as you look to acquire things in terms of, you know, how that's going to impact
0: your pro forma? Because, of you know, course, paying out a lot of reload, that could that impacts NOI, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I got I to tell you, in California, even in non-run control markets, if for some reason, you know, if we have an asset that is in so much trouble that we need to move someone out of that asset... We were doing relocation. We were giving relocation expenses voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually did that once in Portland as well. Uh, because if, you know, we do understand that it's difficult for people to move. And, you know, we, every time we've done it, it's always been because there were major, major issues to a property. Uh, once the foundation was completely cracked and it was unsafe, unlivable to live in. Oh wow! And so we gave, you know, we gave four months rent. So, if you, have to, if you have to kind of have someone move because something's unlivable, but you can also get a return, I think one month's rent is is somewhat fair.
2: Okay. Yeah, great. Um, so, obviously, you know, you're looking in the Portland market, and uh, it looks like you've done a lot of investing in kind of the metro area. Um, so, if you're thinking about the Portland MSA, I mean, do you have places
0: that, like, you've really kind of identified as your favorite places uh, to invest? Yeah. So, we really like the west side. Uh, we like washington county um we've acquired 11 properties we're under contract on three right now and all but two have been either in beaverton or tigard uh so that's been our focus um you know just really good trends in that area so tigard you're in between beaverton lake oswego really well located uh, improving schools um uh, we have a handful of properties in Aloha, uh, which is halfway between Hillsboro and Beaverton and still relatively affordable. Um, and so, yeah, we like Washington County. Great employers, obviously. Everyone knows about Intel and Nike. Um, but, yeah, just generally great uh, demographics. One thing I noticed when we first came here was that the Beaverton average rent, I think, was... Something like nine hundred dollars, but the median income was sixty thousand dollars. Wow! Um, where there's parts in LA where the average rent is north of two thousand dollars, and the median income is sixty five, sixty six thousand dollars. So, as a percentage of as a percentage of income, uh, Washington County, even with all its growth over the last three years, is still very low.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, one of the things I don't think we've covered yet is. Uh, the type of products that you look for obviously you know you and I have talked about it off offline here but you know you you focus primarily on stabilization so tell us a little bit about your projects as you look for them and what what they are when you buy them and what you intend them to be uh once you're complete and you know if you want to throw some of your actual examples in that'd be great too
0: sure yeah um I think we're looking for we're generally looking for mismanaged properties where there's uh you know where there's Uh, Value that can be added generally through renovation, um, sometimes through curing deferred maintenance, uh, things like that. Usually, class C or D properties that could be more of a class B property. I think our plan is to offer a really nice product at a big discount from kind of the class A stuff uh, so that for your, the bang for your buck goes a long way. Uh, We're doing a lot of different things washer dryers in most of our units. Uh, smart locks. Uh, In different markets, we're doing Nest thermostats and things like that. Don't really need that as much here in Portland. Um, And, you know, doing different things. We have cardio labs out of our properties where we're putting in Pelotons. We have uh, boxing classes, things like that. Things that you would find kind of in luxury buildings, but at a, uh, you know, usually 30 plus percent below what you get in a class A building.
1: And you really have talked um, about Portland being a defensive move and kind of the ebb and flow of economies and that being obviously um, an element of your investment strategy. Tell me a little bit about what brought you to Portland from a defensive perspective and what some of those other markets that you pulled out of to get here, because obviously sometimes you're you're moving money from one asset or one geographical region to another. And if I recall correctly, you kind of started in LA and rolled your way through a couple different markets and ended up here. Can you tell us about that movement from a defensive perspective?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, once again, it was, it was A, a diverse economy, B, you know, has been growing consistently for a really long time. Population growth, wage growth, lots of companies moving. Uh, You know, not oversupplied, not a lot of land to build. Um, The urban growth boundaries have actually been really good for apartment owners here. Uh, And, uh, you know, we kind of saw it as, as a market that is going to be strong for a long time that didn't have a lot of uh, big red flags.
1: And ha- has your experience in Portland been good in comparison to getting in and out of some of those other markets?
0: Um, give me an example. So good is in...
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, when you move into a market and you get to know it, uh, everything from dealing with brokers to collaboration between uh, different parties to working with the city on permits to... Uh, dealing with the culture of the tenant and landlord relationships. I mean, each market has its own dynamic, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and as I go and visit, I look around at different buildings and different projects. I look at the costs. I uh, will call on one project. And in, in some areas, I get a call back from a broker six days later. Other areas, it's six minutes later or they answer the phone. So in general, if you're moving from a business perspective from one market into Portland, has your experience in general been um, just a, a fairly smooth experience, or has it been something where there have been, you know, some bumps or challenges with, you know, city county permits or uh, just parties not cooperating or you know tenant landlord relationships that are already kind of predispositioned.
0: So I going to say, in Beaverton and Tigard area where we own most of our properties, is uh, the government and the local, uh, you know, getting through permits things like that hasn't been. Nearly as much of an issue as really anywhere in California. <laughs> okay. uh, it's it's a much more difficult process in California, and a lot of our uh, peers who are invested in Portland, I know some of that stuff can be difficult in Portland. You, Nick, I think you might know more than me in, in terms of Portland for that instance.
2: Um, yeah, I mean there can be a lot of challenges when you get into design review or just different. I mean, there's In some areas, there's no bright lines about what you're supposed to do, and you can get told one thing by the city, come back, and all of a sudden they're you know have a different perspective. You have a different person, and now they want something else done, and it may not be a requirement. It may just be how they feel about you
0: know that particular building. So it's it's unpredictable. That that, uh,
2: adds some complexity to
0: it. Yeah, and you know that's that's completely how it is in California as well. Um, And while it's not great for getting things done, sometimes it could be you know it. Kind of inhibits that extra supply that we're talking about. Um, although there's a great amount of supply that's come recently to the Portland area, um, and uh, you know, uh, just we we love we love it here in this market. Um, the brokers who have been here who have been here forever. It seems like for the most part, uh, a lot of brokers have been here twenty plus years and have been. You know, brokers are the pipeline of our our bloodline of our business, and have been amazing to us in in a lot of different ways, and have kind of been open to meeting us. And you know, sometimes it can be a little bit different in other markets, but uh, so far, I think. Oregon has been good to us. I don't know if I've completely no, no, answered your question I, there. No, no, I think it's, There's I mean, a couple pieces to unpack.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's just something that I think a lot of people would be interested in when um, because that's a fear, I think, of a lot of the clients that we have and people that we work with and investors that we work with is um, if you're out of state, and you're moving into another market that you're unfamiliar with, there's always that hesitation. Who's the contractor I'm going to use? Who's the property manager I'm going to use? Who's the broker I'm going to use? What's the city going to say? Because you're not familiar necessarily with those rules, right? You're playing on someone else's turf. So I just find it really interesting. You know, I think it takes um, a lot of courage and foresight and planning and discipline to kind of walk through that process uh, and utilizing some of the uh, programs and systems that you do to go into an unknown space, discover it, learn it, Figure it out. Invest in it. Take the risk. I, I think. Just think. There's a lot to it, and it's really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, completely. And I think you know, if I could give advice from where we came from, we started kind of right in our neighborhood, and we kind of organically grew ge- geographically and you, built that expertise locally, and then kind of grew from there. Uh, and then you know, real estate's an industry where you can hire a lot of great people, and Portland has some great property management companies that. Will cater to people who are buying buildings from twenty to a uh, hundred units. Uh, better than I've seen in any other market, um, and so you know, I, I think this is a great market to work in. Uh, you bring up a good point.
2: Uh, one of my questions was going to be: obviously, you're buying these assets, you're buying them in multiple markets. Um, we talked a little bit about just the regulatory differences, you know, so. Are these assets that you are, you know, managing in-house, or are these things that you farmed out to management companies? And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you guys are operating and, and why you chose to operate that
0: way. Sure, we we personally self-manage. Uh, we we built out a team. We built out a full team throughout California, and then we have uh, we have a large team now here in Oregon who who works every step of the way from project management. Uh, we have a crew that we've flown out from. California, who does all, all our renovations out here, uh, we have you know we have the marketing experts, things like that, and then you know our on-site managers that we've hired are you know the face of our company basically, uh, especially to our residents. And so um, we built out that vertical platform, uh, but I think if you were just getting started, so we're, we're going into Denver, and Denver is mm-hmm. going to be a new market for us. We're going to start third party. You know, I think uh, so. We can find someone who really understands the market, who understands the nuances, maybe see some things that uh, we might not see, you know, knows the block by block uh, and costs that are specific to a new market and things like that so um i mean obviously bringing
2: something in-house is you know there's there can be some benefits to that obviously you have a lot of internal expertise you know people who are familiar with the properties um you know them being part of the company maybe there's more buy-in to accountability um but have you guys done any sort of kind of evaluation in terms of like cost meaning are you saving money by in-housing it versus
0: outsourcing we're definitely not saving money okay i think it's uh it definitely costs us more to do it in-house than to hire a third-party management company. And I think a lot of that is just uh, an extra added level of control for us. Uh, and we've been doing it a long time, and we built out the team in LA, and we had a lot of trust in that team. And as soon as we saw that this was a great team, uh, we wanted to take them to Portland and things like that. But we're definitely not saving money by doing it in-house.
1: You know, that totally makes sense. And how many assets total do you do you guys have?
0: Uh, we have about twenty-four assets.
1: Okay, and do you remember at what did you start out um, handling all of your own assets in each market, or did you ever do uh, third-party management? And do, have you played around with that space?
0: Yeah, we have done third-party management, um, and there, you know, there's really good third-party managers, and there's not so good third-party <laughs> managers. And <laughs> don't we, don't tr- we know, we've Nick? Tr- <laughs> Experience, Um And I think there's another thing is that there's. You have to adapt to kind of what's going on in the market, uh, and especially in a market like Portland. Uh, and so you have to find a third-party manager that is able to adapt and things like that. But you know, we we started early on when we we're just a couple of us, uh, and we did have some third-party management. And then as soon as we, you know, started aggregating a larger portfolio, we started to hire more team members and and build out the office so that we can. Um, manage our own properties.
1: Yeah, and, and I know it makes a big difference to the person too, right? I mean, you're in the game every day. This is your job. You know, if I'm if I'm working my nine to five and I have a 25 unit building, I probably should not be doing my job and then totally. someone else's job, right? Totally. So you work in that space, you eat in that space and live in that space and that makes a significant difference. So um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah,
0: and, or, and there's an example there too is uh, uh, my dad recently sold a single family home uh, that he owned and he bought he bought a ten-unit apartment building, and he's like, "Why don't we manage it together?" And I said, "You know what? Why don't we hire a, a good third-party management company that has the assets that can be, you know, there for your residents right away and things like that." And even though I, I'm in the space, uh, I thought it was good uh, for him to have a third-party management company to rely on.
1: It, you know, in the in the long term, it probably is a scenario where he can hold them accountable without being shy about it. And he can say, hey, what? where's my statement? You said it was going to be here X, Y date, and it's not over turkey dinner or something, you know, so that makes sense too.
2: Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that you guys have investors, you know, you can make a pretty strong case for in-housing it, even if it costs more, just because I think to your point, when you're talking about control you know, one of the biggest risks in owning real estate is actually management risk, right? Like a, a good management company can make or break the performance of a property. And so if you guys have investors and you have that extra layer of control, I mean, that's kind of a part of your risk management plan is what it
0: sounds like. Completely. Exactly.
1: Farhan, uh, tell me a little bit about how you're analyzing these properties. Are you looking for cash on cash return? Are you looking for long-term asset, five-year internal rate of return? What, what is it exactly numbers-wise that you're looking for, um, on, on these projects as you take them on,
0: yeah. So we're we're actually we're focused on a pro forma cap rate on cost. So what is what is that uh, cap rate post renovation that you can get to untrended? Uh, and we want there to be a spread on from today's cap rate to uh, the cap rate we can get to. So if the market cap rate market cap rate in uh, Beaverton, for example, is somewhere between five. 5- Five and a quarter to five and a half, uh, which is, uh, by the way, a great market cap rate. That means you get uh, that much cash flow off the bat if you were not lever- if you did not put a loan on it. You get five and a half percent back. Uh, we're trying to get to a point where we can get to close to six and a half cap on our total cost, and so we've created basically that portion of value, uh, which would usually be on a levered basis uh, 30 to 40% return if we were to sell it right away. Um, but if we weren't going to sell it, it's close to a double-digit cash-on-cash return uh, if we were to own it forever uh, on an interest-only loan. And on a non-interest-only loan, it's you know 7.5%,
1: 8%. Okay, so you're looking at increasing the value by a point on the cap rate. On finished, stabilized value. Exactly. Okay.
0: Okay. Exactly. And what's great about that, because a lot of groups that are similar to ours focus a lot on IRR and things like that. And I think IRR, we look at IRR for sure. Uh, But if we don't know what value we can create right away, the fact that we can create 30 to 40% value in an asset uh, without any growth... uh, makes it kind of a safer investment for our our investors. So if everything goes wrong, let's say everything goes wrong and uh, you don't get any growth and maybe you have some cost overruns and things like that, you have that 30%, 40% cushion uh, before you lose any of the money you invested.
1: Well, you know, two, two positives I see about that too are, you know, number one, it's much like you buying under market, right? I mean, if the cap... Cap rate on that's five and a half, but you buy it at a six and a half without doing anything to it. And it's a stabilized project. You made that happen right by buying it under in this case you're actually creating that yes by stabilizing the project and according to your you know prior conversation you're also creating a better environment for the tenants you're stabilizing the neighborhood you're adding value to the community so i mean when you put all that together i I think it creates a great return for your investors and longevity too so i I really like that formula i I think it's great
0: yeah yeah definitely we're we're looking to create value immediately and Uh, The quicker you create value, the more downside protection you have.
1: Absolutely. So uh, thank you all for joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Be back with Farhan Mahmood to discuss uh, resources he uses to stay informed in markets, uh, his next target market, and take on uh, single family versus multifamily. We'll be right back. every real estate transaction is an investment whether you're buying your first home selling your current home or looking for an investment property you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth matt williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one unlike other realtors matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process if you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate Go to BisonProperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N Properties.com.
2: Okay, so we're back from our break. Uh, just for those of you who are joining us, uh, we are talking to Farhan Mahmood about uh, essentially investing in the West Coast and some of their strategy around multifamily. Um, so one of the things that we kind of want to tackle, I mean, it, it sounds like a big part of your focus is um, is been around multifamily, and one of the big kind of things in the institutional market has been that, you know, single family is this new shiny product that they're really excited about. Um, is this something you've considered as part of your investment strategy, and um, why or
0: why not? And I guess you know, how come you are in the niche you are? No, we haven't considered it. I mean, I I think in the markets we're in, and I think everything's really neighborhood specific, as we were talking about in the break we're seeing more cash flow out of multifamily and while the institutions have through the downturn uh came in and invested a lot in the single family rental space uh unprecedented amount um multifamily institutional investment is also at an all-time high and is uh, is you know multiples above kind of where the single family investment is but it depends on your neighborhood, you know so there are neighborhoods where a single family investment can get a strong cash flow, and so for me, that cash flow is really important. Uh, you know I need a cash flowing asset and things like that, and so on the multifamily side, that's where we see it you know the lowest hanging fruit I think so one of the things again, you know we've kind of touched on this you're in multiple
2: markets and you are actively pursuing you know acquisitions um, obviously there's a lot of information kind of flowing around out there. What resources do you use to make sure that, you know, you're able to get a good peek at a market, stay informed about a market,
0: know when, you know, it's time to move in or move out of a market? There are many different ways to go. I think uh, census data can actually be really interesting. And if you really want to geek out, you can get census data in Excel and kind of see uh, (laughs) historically uh, what population growth has gone like. And And a lot of the census data aggregators will show you wage growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is really interesting as well. Uh, Local brokers in the community have fascinating information about, you know, block by block, uh, what's happening, uh, price per unit, uh, cash flow. Um, I think one big thing for us is if we can get to that uh, if we could get comfortable with the market's dynamics in terms of its economics, in terms of kind of where it stands in the country, um, and then we can get that you know pro forma, that future seven to ten percent cash flow, uh, I think we can get pretty comfortable pretty quickly.
1: You know, one of the things I was impressed about with your last visit, um, we were able to have lunch, we chatted a little bit, and you were really looking at the, at the different areas even of Portland. You were looking, uh, you know, there's this um, <laughs> kind of undertone battle of east side versus west side, and you were <laughs> even looking out on the east side a little bit. You've talked about the Beaverton-Tigard area. Um, what, what did that look like to you when you're comparing the east and, and west side from, a, from an investment perspective when you were looking out east?
0: yeah um so when we first came the the rent to income ratio on the west side was such a no-brainer to invest in uh and it it wasn't so much the case on the east side but what we've kind of seen over three years pretty quickly is uh incomes have grown um place like gresham there's been very little new supply uh so gresham has I think one of the lowest vacancies in the entire market right now. They've had a lot of new jobs. Amazon built a warehouse uh, right there, as uh, good schools and things like that. And so, um, the rent to income ratio has gone up, and in parts like Gresham, the waterfront development in Vancouver we talked about last time a little bit, and um, you know we're we're tracking it. It's more of an art than a science, you know, when you're talking about where to invest and things like that. We try to put the numbers and things like that, but then there's also an element of talking to, you know, you guys and kind of what you saw. And I know you guys really liked Vancouver last time we spoke. And yeah. as mm-hmm. soon as I I came back, we we dug into that a little bit more. Uh, and we had some economic reports that we paid for a service. And I kind of dug into economic reports and, um, and then talk to the people on the ground, a combination of the two. I remember when we first started going to new markets, uh, you know, we'd go to the local diner and talk to everyone in there and, hey, what's going on in this neighborhood? What's changing? And they might be like, hey, Kaiser's actually hiring, you know, 250 n- new people down the street. And that's that's a yeah. that's a great piece of information that, you know, Uh, will help you. Uh, Other things that we look at is public transportation is huge. And Portland's going through some expansions in public transportation. Denver is a new market that we've been looking at. And we want to be along the light rail. Uh, Denver's kind of focused. The Denver Tech Center is kind of the demand generator of that market. One of the, you know, we're a lot of the best jobs are in that market. And so if you're along the light rail going to the Denver Tech Center, you know, anywhere within 30 minutes, I, it's a great place. That's a great place to be.
1: Nice. Now, um, speaking of markets, what what is your next target market? You've mentioned Denver several times here as we've been talking. Uh, I've heard a lot about Salt Lake City. I've been hearing a little bit of a buzz on Boise, Idaho. Are those markets... Um, in your scope or peripheral vision, and uh, what what are your next target markets now that now that you're feeling pretty pretty solid in Portland?
0: Yeah, uh, so Denver Denver is the number one market that we're looking at, and Denver's where we spent the most time. Uh, and I think I've mentioned a few different reasons why. One one great thing though is anywhere you can get north of five percent cash flow without doing anything, a market that you can do that, uh, that's great. And you know we come from California, where uh, you know parts of Los Angeles start at three percent cash flow, uh, and that's not as great. Jeez. Uh, and you know this is for <laughs> vintage building with a lot of risk and things like that. Denver has has that cash flow. Salt Lake has that cash flow. One thing we worried for our, our business in Salt Lake is that there's a lot of new construction, and as there's a lot of new construction, some of those rents were kind of falling. And it makes that Class B product, you know, a lot less difficult to build. Um, so we haven't been able to make sense of Salt Lake City. But if you were more of a buy and hold holder, uh, the demographics of Salt Lake City are, are kind of booming. Uh, is, you know, we're going through this time uh, where it seems like everyone's starting to, you know, if you look at New York, you look at San Francisco, you look at L.A., they're not growing at the rates that they used to, and the and people uh, the country's looking like it's realigning in a lot of ways. I think the number one fastest growing metro, uh, in twenty seventeen uh, latest data I looked at was uh, was Raleigh, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. a lot in Texas uh, that we're talking about, and and Arizona Las Vegas we we're talking about also because there's there's a move to affordability, and then even that's those are the big metros. But then even if we just talk about Portland, you know, there's, uh, I think people are looking for more affordable sub markets in parts of Portland. And I think areas like Milwaukee, that's not too far from downtown Portland. Uh, You know, Cornelius, I was looking at the other day, uh, because it's not too far from Hillsborough, uh, but is more affordable. I think people are looking for that affordability. And so if you can kind of look for that pattern on, uh, and try to connect the dots. You know, like I said, more of an art than a science. You try to use st- statistics and information to back it up and, um, you know, use the resources you have have uh, to you. And I think the brokerages and the property management companies, uh, the good ones, will be able to point you in that right direction.
2: I would agree 100% too with, um, you know, people are moving towards affordability just because you know, housing is getting a bit outrageous. I mean, you see some people spending 40, 45, 50% of their income on housing, which is well beyond kind of a band. Yeah, that's too much. But there's also a bit of a, you know, migration towards warmer climates, though, too. I mean, you notice that people are leaving areas oftentimes like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and and like you alluded to, New York, Massachusetts. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that could play into that, um, you know, because you have to look at, which pattern is moving, you know, what is that age cohort that's, you know, leaving? Because obviously if you have an older demographic, that often means they're retiring, things like that. Um, you know, so looking at if millennials are moving in or out can be kind of an important indicator on whether or not those markets are going to be growing in the future or not because they form new households, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, an interesting stat about uh, Oregon for instance is oregon has not lost uh people to any other state except for washington uh and those are people going to seattle going towards the jobs uh seattle has a tremendous job market and seattle for us is just a market that we haven't been able to break because difficulty getting that yield that we're kind of looking for
1: yeah you know um we went to a presentation um, and the, there's a state statistician and economist that was talking about just the, the dynamics of where all the income earners are. And there's a pretty – it's pretty interesting to look at a map of where all the income is and how it's allocated. Um, and you see some of that. You know, some of the, Some of the folks going to Washington as well are going over the bridge – into Vancouver because of the affordability issue. Yeah. And you look in, you know, Vancouver, I think they're right around $65,000, uh, income in the city of Vancouver. And then Camas is at like 91,000. It was a pretty significant difference. And so to see those numbers was kind of interesting because it's a suburb even of Vancouver, but it's all new construction. There are developments that are planned around schools and parks. Schools, so important. Yeah, and and here, you know, in Portland, there's this dynamic uh, and just kind of undertone that those that have lived here forever think it's crazy expensive, even though people moving here from other metros think it's cheap. Uh, And they also think that... um, you know, it's just not the Portland that I grew up in. The dynamic and culture is, is really shifting too. So, um, you know, you see a little bit of that with East and West, uh, East side, West side struggle, but, um, we see that certainly expansion out towards, uh, Cornelius for instance and Gresham, you know, people think, oh, Gresham, that's so far, so far East, uh, when it's not. And the vacancy rates are crazy low, you know, Troutdale Fairview has the the lowest, uh, vacancy rate in the Portland Metro area. So it's, it's quite interesting. So as you transition from one metro to another, what's your exit strategy? So obviously you're acquiring properties. Is it, um, you know, obviously you have a, as you mentioned before, a short term plan, and then you have this long term backup plan, right? Because yeah. you want to be in a position where if your exit strategy was five years, then you don't want to be forced to sell in five years if you have to wait it out. So what's your exit strategy in each market? Are um, Are you, are you buying five and holding one in each market or hold the best out of five in each market and acquire long-term what, what, what's your strategy?
0: You know, I think in, the you know, in the stage in our careers, in our lives, frankly, we're at is that we're, we're sellers of real estate to build wealth. Uh, so we'll go in, we'll add the value and we'll sell and then take that money and buy something bigger or, uh, you know, sell three or four deals a year, buy another uh, four to six deals a year, and we're constantly selling. We are starting to look at maybe buying newer construction assets that we can hold longer uh, as long as we can get that yield. Uh, But where we are at as a company right now, we're we're constantly selling. Nice. You've had... A pretty unique experience, I would say,
2: compared to a lot of investors and the fact that you've been into multiple markets, right? You know, a lot of people get real comfortable in their backyard. Um, They don't know where to begin, right, when they go into another market. And you guys have been kind of tackling multiple states concurrently. Um, You know, if someone's looking to invest in the West Coast, uh, Western region, you know, what
0: advice do you have for them? The first thing is try it first in your neighborhood. You know, you know your neighborhood. You know where the best grocery store is, you know where the good schools are, you know where the public transportation is, uh, you know where the buzz is building and things like that. Start in your neighborhood, um, you know. And I think I think apartments are a business that I think anyone could logically kind of pick up. And if you have a good team around you, uh, you can do really well as long as you have the capital to do it or if you can raise the capital to do it, um, I think anyone could invest in apartments, um, maybe some better than others. But I, I think all you have to do is do one foot in front of another, start local, start small, and just keep on building up. We, um, we bought a property from uh, from a gentleman who was in his 80s, and he uh, – one of the greatest guys, his name's John Sullivan in, in the Bay Area – And he was in his 80s, and uh, he started as a contractor, then became a broker, and then bought his first single-family home, then his second single-family home, until he had 25 single-family homes, bought his first apartment building. And now where we're at today, he had almost $750 million worth of apartments that he had built up over time, just taking one step Ahead of the other, and and the guy was an inspiration, you know. Yeah, a real life Monopoly man, there. Yeah, like. <laughs> completely, completely. And look, it takes a lot of hard work. Uh, the apartment business, a lot of times, we were just talking about it at the break. There's a lot of putting out fires and coming up with solutions for all different types of problems and things like that. But I think if you have a good team around you, I think anyone can do it. And I always encourage people to invest in apartments. Just make sure you have good people around you.
1: Absolutely. You know, Farhan, we, we really appreciate your time today on the professional level. We, w- we want to ask you a few personal questions. not sure. Not too personal, but uh, we want to get to very, know. Very personal. Very personal. <laughs> yeah. We want to get to know you a little bit, too. Um, and then, you know, really, for us, we want to know the people that we deal with because we're human, right? I mean, we this business can be really transactional. And it's really important for me, at least, to know that. You know, when I called you, you answered the phone, I sent you an email, we we scheduled this and this was off of me seeing you at a presentation. And it's really important for me to continually remind myself that we're all humans and just because someone owns seven hundred and fifty million dollars in real estate doesn't mean they didn't start like us. Yeah. And Uh, didn't at some point do what we're doing. So we're going to go through a few questions here. Um, You know, first is, is there an aha moment that you've had in the past year that's really changed your approach to some aspect of your career or your life or the way that you deal with people or anything like that? Hmm,
0: that's a pretty cool question. Um, You know, it's interesting. So I'm actually coming up on my one-year anniversary this week, and uh, I think... Where, we're, where I'm at and a lot of friends and things like that are having kids and things like that, and seeing friends with new kids has really been kind of an aha moment in the fact that you are, you want to be someone who your kids will look up to and you start to really see that in your friends and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of exciting to know that you're, you're going to pass something on to... Uh, you know, a child and things like that. And um, my wife and I are trying to have kids and things like that. And we're really excited and thinking about what our life in totality can look like just based on (laughs) seeing a good friend of yours have a kid, you know. Uh, And I don't know if that's exactly what you're looking for, but like that's, you know, that's been a big part of our life right now.
1: Yeah. Well, it's exactly, I mean, each aha moment comes in different forms, right? I mean, yeah. um, You don't know what you don't know. And then that's what makes it an aha moment, right? You yeah. come across this piece in your life where it's like, whoa, I'm building a legacy. I, it's not mm-hmm. just me anymore. Now it's me and my wife. And then a year later, it's not just me and my wife. We're we're building a family. And <laughs> these humans depend on me, at least for the first 18 years. So that, that's really important.
2: You just cut them off after 18. You're like, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> well, I've done everything I can.
1: I'm he not he doesn't <laughs> have to. I'm going to. He doesn't have to.
0: You, you know what's funny is... Uh, Uh, So we live in a loft in downtown Los Angeles. And a funny thing is that I think the average age in that building is like in the 60s. For some (laughs) reason, it's attracted this really older creative community. And what I find is people in their 60s are kind of very similar to people in their early 20s. You know, because they don't have those big responsibilities and stuff, and they've yeah. been the funnest people to go hang out with because <laughs> they're, they're completely carefree and things like that, and it's kind of been fun to see that. That's
1: funny. There's a lot of
0: parties in your building and noise complaints. Then. So much, actually. <laughs> so much. You, you would not believe it. You would not believe it.
2: Um, yeah, so I guess another item we wanted to kind of know a little bit about is, could you tell us about
0: a ritual that you have and do every day? Oh, man, it seems like, it seems like we're in that day and time... Where everyone's kind of focused on mental health and things like that, and so I've definitely, I definitely started uh, the meditation thing, uh, and I do it before I go to sleep every night, and um, I just got Headspace, the app. Oh, dude, yeah, yeah I have yeah, that one. Yeah, I have it too. And... <laughs> we're so, we're so trendy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm just kind of getting into it. Um, but it's, you know, the day can be very stressful in, in our industries. I think we can all relate to that. Uh, you know, the deals can get kind of crazy and or the problems get feel a little big and things like that. And it's important to figure out a way to just think on your own and find that time for one day to end and then to start the other and just to kind of completely relax and not think about anything or have time to just think to yourself about what happened in the day. Um I we've been running a lot more. Um I've actually gotten into soul cycle.
2: Oh, have you? <laughs> recently. Yeah. That's pretty, I mean we have like Orange Theory up here that's like super popular and Yeah, done stuff like that a couple of times. Just got beat apart, so I don't
0: know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, embarrassing, yeah. It's very humbling. The the hit workouts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i'm trying to i'm trying to find time cuz you know it's really when you're not with someone it's really easy to pick up your phone and just start looking up just you know never being completely on your own and just thinking about things and, and yeah. uh my wife and i are going to going on a vacation uh thursday celebrating our anniversary awesome. and um you know every time i come back from a vacation where I haven't really thought about work and things like that. Uh, The fires don't feel that big. The problems don't feel unsolvable and things like that. And so it's like, it's really important to take that time in the day and take that time in the year to uh, clear your head. Yeah. Great. Um, How do you measure success? Oh man, that's a tough question. Um, Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I guess that's something that still kind of figuring out, right? Doesn't it feel like no matter how many steps you take, you still feel you don't feel as successful as you could be. You always kind of, you know, yeah, wherever you get to, you always feel like you can do better. Um, you know, I I feel like it's just how you work with the people around you. Uh, how you work with your family, how you work with your team, how your team respects you, um, and things like that. And I think that's a huge element of of being successful. Um, I don't know. You could ask me that question maybe three years from now, and I might have so many different answers right now. I think, like, uh, we are – I'm grinding right now. You know, I'm grinding yeah. trying to – build this company and it's so much more than it was when we first started and but we see it hopefully being so much bigger than where it was and so i'm just focused on grinding and building uh building company building my family and uh and that's the focus but
2: uh i'll definitely make a note of that and check in in 3 years cuz i'm going to be curious yeah how do you where- how
0: do you define success Oh. <laughs> oh, he flipped it on you. <laughs> I asked the questions here. Uh, <laughs> you know,
2: I think for me personally, it's going to be, do I feel challenged? Um, do I feel like I'm able to invest in people that I care about? And then, you know, I do use, you know, money as a way to kind of keep score to some degree because it helps me know if I'm making progress. But one of the things that I really love actually and, you know, didn't really recognize until I you know, started a business and started having employees is I really like creating an opportunity for other people and cool. watching them grow. Um, that's amazing because when you start to be around other people and you've got some experience, you know, with just kind of managing people, um, you get to see potential that they don't even know they have yet. And to see them kind of recognize that and step into it. I mean, I don't have kids, Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily the same comparison, but it's just exciting. I just, I see a lot of like, um, I just, that gets, I'm passionate about that. So cool.
1: Yeah. I I think, um, you know, success and your definition of success really changes with age and stage, which is kind of what you were talking about, you know, um, my goals in being success and like how I validated myself used to be pretty focused around being a company owner, being the boss and having money in my account, not the richest man, but I wanted to be able to provide for myself. Then they changed to, I wanna be able to provide for myself and my, my wife. And now that I have kids, now it's like, how do I get to a point where I'm a great example to them? I'm allowing them to be who they want to be, not who I want them to be. And how do I create space utilizing other people's skill set combined with mine in a collaborative manner where I can be a human be who i want to be on days that i should be with my kids and and that has nothing to do with you know nick's version because nick's version is where he is right now and uh the things he's got on his table your version is dealing with the things you got on your table and i i think we just um are completely modifying that and that's part of human nature and that's what's what makes it amazing right i mean because the next building isn't your final building And you're going to love the next one and be stressed out about it. But the important part of that is that four buildings down the road or 10 years down the road when you have 40 buildings, you're going to say, yeah, I remember that building I was so stressed out about. I've got 50 of them sitting on my plate and I'm not stressed. Right. I mean, that's going to be a completely different scenario as we build and grow those little battles that we have along the way make them, you know, make the old ones seem so small, but we didn't feel that way at the time. You know, I remember my first real estate transaction. I was so stressed out. So much paperwork. There was so much to do that I had to do the home inspection. I had to do the, you know, the appraiser was going to be out there. I had to look my best for the appraiser. I had no idea that wasn't important. And the <laughs> I, I
2: think that it is. I mean, you, I, yes, you I, might not care how you dress. But, I should uh, definitely. Yeah, I but, but, you
1: know, back then wearing, but... the agreement too was three pages long. Now it's 12 pages plus 18 pages in addenda and the due diligence period is completely different right so I mean it, it's constantly progressing and for us to be in a position and you know to be honest you being in a position right now to teach our audience and us what you know is a phenomenal achievement and a, a great opportunity to show success for you you know to to be the the teacher in some way even though you've got teachers you are a teacher at the same time I, I think it's a great uh, success for, for all three of us you know
0: thank you this is uh, this is really cool just to you know talk to you guys and talk about what's going on and what we're seeing and how we're figuring out the world in a lot of different ways, you know? And yeah, it's, this has been really fun.
1: Yeah, good, good. Couple more real quick. We got, sure. if, if you had to take a few albums to a deserted island for a year, it's just you and a few albums, musically, which would you choose? Hmm. What, what are you taking with you to listen to? You, you only have a few, so it may get
0: monotonous. So we just went, we just went to the Sundance Film Festival uh, in Park City, Utah, and there's this movie about this kid in, in the UK in the 80s when they were in this deep recession getting obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and I've literally been listening to Bruce Springsteen on Spotify That's nonstop. Awesome. <laughs> it, it's, it's it's If you listen to the words, it's really fun music. Uh, and if I had to bring another one, I'd probably go completely the other end and do Kanye West. Wow, that is, <laughs> that is the other one. <laughs> well, you got,
1: you got to pick me up and bring me down. That Nebraska album by Bruce Springsteen was great. I don't know if you've yeah, checked definitely. that one out.
0: That's a good one. I like but, it Diversity. That is good. Yeah. Diversity. Well, the college dropout. The college dropout. I'm talking about Kanye West before he was famous. Oh, it's okay. pretty fun. It's throwbacks. a, pretty, yeah. a it. pretty fun album because there's he, this guy, you know, and we are talking about it. There's this guy who's like trying to make it and Talking about no one believing in him and that kind of stuff, and that was a fun Kanye West. Nice. Yeah. Um, if you could have
2: dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be?
1: Hmm.
0: Dinner with one person, dead or alive. Don't say Kardashians. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going <laughs> to say that. Um, you know, I think I think it would be. I think it would be someone in my family. I think it would be my grandfather. My grandfather passed, passed away when I was really young and I thought he was the coolest guy in the world, but I never got like all his stories, you know? And I've heard a lot of his stories secondhand since that time, and it's just a shame. I've never I never really got to talk to him about all that stuff, you know. Um so I, I think that's who be yeah, it's a great nice. answer.
2: Well, uh, you know, we want to thank you for um coming in and spending some time with us uh today. How can the audience uh get a hold of you um if they want to or
0: you know find your information? Sure, um, I love just talking to people, anyone you know who will email me a direct and I'd love to grab a coffee, things like that. Um, my email is fmahmood. F-M-A-H- m-o-o-d at tryon t-r-i-o-n dash properties dot com I think that's probably the best way Um, and yeah
1: and I'll just mention you have a really good website that that actually spells out a lot of your uh, templates and kind of what you're looking for and your investment strategies too And um, so you can always look them up online too
2: perfect well I think um, that's everything guys
1: hey thanks very much I really appreciate it thank you guys that was Farhan Mahmood with Tryon Properties the director of acquisitions there that wraps up another episode of invest in the west I'm Matt Williams here with Nicholas Cook be sure to subscribe so you can catch us next time